like, well, if first grade is the start of compulsory education, why can't kindergarten? Because it would show a true commitment investment in early childhood education. And so I, I think that's essential because I've seen the consequences just in my classroom when kids miss significant time. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher here in the Los Angeles area. And this, of course, is All the Above, your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. Shout out to those of you who are watching us on YouTube. Now, we're not super active on the YouTubes, so if you only watch us on YouTube, do make sure to head over to your favorite podcast streaming app because we do drop episodes in between these video episodes that we call passing periods. And if you are listening to the podcast on your favorite podcast streaming app, please go ahead and click that link to go over to the video on YouTube and just give it a quick thumbs up, even if you don't watch the YouTube, just to help out those algorithms. We're trying to build this show, Jeff. We're trying to get this show in more people's feeds because there's a lot of educators out there fighting the good fight, doing what they can. And a lot of them are working in isolation and we want to welcome them into the AOTA family. Ain't that right, Jeff? Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, and you know, as you were saying that, Manuel, I did just, I heard the echoes of uh, Bomani Jones in in my in my ears. Uh, it's just saying, <laughs> if you give less than five stars, I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. I mean. And uh, <laughs> so yes, also helping the algorithms means uh, show some love. And and you know maybe in the in the great kindergarten wisdom of the world, if you don't have something nice to say, maybe just keep it to yourself. There is that. There is that. Man, picture this world <laughs> if we all adhered to that very fundamental principle. Wow, we would have, the world would be a lot quieter. Let's say that, it'd be a lot quieter. So there's that. Well, Jeff, this is one of those rare episodes. You know, we're, we're two full-time educators and our work life is, is very busy. So sometimes we film these episodes a little bit ahead of time to give, to give me time to edit it and chop it up, to put it up there on the YouTubes and all that. So this is one of those rare episodes where we're filming on essentially the eve of a very major election. And by the time this posts, by the time this airs, the election will already be in our rear view mirror. So Jeff, it's possible, it's possible that by the time folks are listening or watching this, listening to or watching this episode, all of our problems maybe have been solved. Perhaps we elected a slew of leaders who care deeply about education and education <laughs> issues. And perhaps we are marching towards a very just and equitable education system for all. So the, the problems might've already been solved by the time this airs, Jeff. Just yes, uh, folks, we are announcing this is the final episode of All the Above solved because uh, <laughs> that's right. Hashtag solved it. Uh, uh, yeah, we're we going to be here for a minute, I think, uh, regardless <laughs> of what happens on November. What is it? November 8th uh, this year. Yeah. Uh, although, let's be real, we could go down the completely, uh, you know, like nutty, loony, uh, insane route on November 8th, which... I'm certain would have all kinds of unfortunate consequences for our profession of education. Uh, so true. folks, uh, you know, make, make good choices on November 8th, please. Yeah, um, too late for that by the time this airs, but um, <laughs> it's possible if we do go down that path, 
Perhaps this episode has already been scrubbed from the internets for being anti-American and CRT stuff and all that. So we shall see what the future holds, Jeff. But assuming that we are out there in the space delivering news and analysis in the world of education, um, let's go ahead and let our viewers and listeners know what's on today's agenda. Yes, indeed, folks. Well, as usual, we got a good one for everybody. And today, uh, I think it's fair to say we're going to delve into a topic that takes both Manuel and I a little bit out of our comfort zone. We yep. are uh, both, of course, uh, secondary folks, both high, you know, high school history teachers currently and formerly. And uh, so that's kind of our wheelhouse, right? And um, we have had over the years several ed uh, elementary educators on the show uh, but I think it's probably fair to say maybe not enough, right? We tend to come from that, that secondary lens or even sometimes a post-secondary lens. But today, Manuel, we're going to dive into the world of the early grades, that early childhood education, pre-K, kindergarten, early elementary uh, phase of human development and of our very important field of education, especially when it comes to the developmental uh, experience of the youngest people in our society, Manuel. Um, so today we have a fabulous kindergarten teacher, Teo Enna, coming on to join us. He works up in the San Jose area. Uh, he is an award-winning teacher, a person who's not only uh, done great work in the classroom, but extended that work around um, you know the, the schoolhouse and into the community as well. And uh, we're gonna be delving into some really important questions around kind of equity issues in early ed. And so I think it's gonna be fascinating. Definitely stick around, folks. You don't wanna miss it. Hey, that sounds dope. Mr. Enna in the building. But Jeff, kindergarten, as much as we love the little ones, they're so cute. Some of our <laughs> listeners, maybe many, maybe most of our listeners and viewers, they don't really work with, with children at that age, at that level. I know myself as a high school teacher, why should I, why should I want to listen to a conversation about what's happening in the world of kindergarten? Well, first of all, Manuel, I will say that uh, probably, I'm not, not even probably, 100%, the most underrated, under-respected set of teachers in our profession, Manuel, are kindergarten teachers. Boom. I have never been more terrified in my life to cover a class <laughs> than I was covering kindergarten, okay? <laughs> well, like, kindergarten is no joke. Give me some ornery 17-year-olds any day of the week <laughs> over, over kindergarten. Uh, so first of all, put some respect on their name, all right? Yeah. Uh, second of all, I will say that I, few and far between is the secondary educator or upper elementary educator uh, or parent who's frustrated with their experience in school in some way out there who has not thought about like, how did some problem that we are seeing in the, in the later grades come to pass, right? How do we wind up with a ninth grader who's struggling to read? Or how do we wind up with, you know, a seventh grader who's got these like, temper tantrum kinds of, you know, uh, behavior outbursts that seem developmentally like they should be past that stage or something, right? Um, and so I think for all of us, the idea of what a really strong foundational start in the early grades, in particular in kindergarten, uh, what that means for a student's ability to thrive as they proceed throughout their, you know, K-12 educational experience or pre-K-12 educational experience, 
um, is a really profound question. And we can all relate to the fact of like when that strong foundation is there, it has long term sustainable ripple effects. Right. Um, so whether you are, you know, an early ed teacher or not, uh, everybody recognizes the difference between building on a strong foundation or, you know, having to backfill in those ways. So I think there's huge implications here for, for everyone interested in good outcomes at the end of our K-12 experience. Boom. There you have it. There you have it, folks. So definitely you don't want to miss that seminar discussion with Teo Enna. But up first, we have our Do Now, where we take a look at news and headlines in the world of education. That's up next. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. There's a lot going on in the world of education, and the Do Now gives us an opportunity to take a look at at least a couple stories happening in our world. So, Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today? Well, man, well, today uh, we got a roll call. I'm going to take some attendance, see who's in the building, who's in the house today. Uh, that ever-important roll call. Got to make sure we know who's in the building. And um, for this first roll call, Jeff, it's actually a lot of names. It's like 120-something names, and mm. we will be here for the whole rest of the episode if we were to actually take attendance and read through this whole roster. So I'm going to just say it's a whole lot of names, Jeff. It's a whole lot of names. <laughs> a whole lot of names. Nice. Uh, I'm sure that uh, this approach to taking attendance will result in you getting a call from the main office uh, sometime <laughs> around the end of second period, wondering where your official attendance roster is for the day, Manuel. But uh, OK, yeah. if this is what we got to do, this is what we got to do. <laughs> yeah, for sure. This roster is a couple of pages long, a couple of pages long. With student names, might I add, actual student names. All right, so this is in reference to a story that we picked up from the Heckinger Report, uh, thanks to some good reporting by Neil Morton for the Heckinger Report. And Neil Morton reports that an innovative teaching model has taken hold at Westwood High School in Mesa, which is Arizona's largest school system. Picture 135 ninth graders, four teachers, and one giant classroom. Five years ago, faced with high teacher turnover and declining student enrollment, Westwood's leaders decided to try something different. Working with professors at Arizona State University's Teachers College, they piloted a classroom model known as Team Teaching. It allows teachers to voluntarily dissolve the walls that separate their classes across physical or grade divides. The teachers share large groups of students, sometimes 100 or more, and rotate between big group instruction, one-on-one -on -one interventions, small study groups, or whatever the teachers as a team agree is a priority for that day. Each morning, the Westwood teams meet for two hours to hash out a personalized program for every student on their shared roster, dictating the lessons, skills, and assignments the team will focus on that day. By giving teachers more opportunity to collaborate and greater control over how and what they teach, Mesa's administrators hoped to fill staffing gaps and boost teacher morale and retention. And it just might be working. In a survey of hundreds of the district's teachers last year, researchers found that those who worked on teams reported greater satisfaction with their job. Also, they reported more frequent collaborations with colleagues and more positive interactions with students. Now, data on the impact on teacher vacancies, however, remains limited. So, Jeff, giant classroom, like physically, literally a giant classroom with a whole lot of students in it, 100, 120, 135, and four teachers all learning together. What are your thoughts about this story and this approach to teaching and this approach to 
addressing the teaching shortage? Yeah, Manuel. So uh, on the one hand, I generally am down with people thinking flexibly and creatively about how to approach um, our work of educating young people. And um, I am usually a fan of opportunities that involve pushing the boundaries around things like what is the physical construction of what school should, should look like. I am almost 100% of the time a fan of any approach that's going to involve greater collaboration between teachers and deprivatization of practice among educators. Um, and for us thinking flexibly about placement of students throughout the day. So, you know, oftentimes in schools, we just have physical boundaries, walls and things that make that very difficult to do. So uh, in spirit, I'm curious. Uh, in reality, Manuel, I have so many questions. And maybe, you know, the reality is like this article wasn't written to like technically explain all the details of the model. But I was like, I have so many questions, <laughs> Manuel. So, you know, first of all, I'm wondering about things like what is the actual uh, use of time configuration for this 135 students? Are they in this space all day? Are they rotating between teachers or are the teachers actually team teaching? Uh, didn't seem to get clarity on that uh, from the model. There are questions that come up about things like credentialing and, you know, are the kids in this model being taught a core content subject by someone who's not credentialed or not an expert um, in that content area? Because the, the article seems to be talking about how, you know, this this strategy was partially thought of to address issues of teacher shortages. So I'm like, does this mean like they don't have a math teacher, but they're just doing math, you know, on like Khan Academy or something and being supervised by another teacher? Um, you know, the article definitely delved a little bit into the idea of student outcomes. And I think it sounds like, at least in the case of this district in Arizona and maybe some other places in Arizona where this, this seems to have spread some, that it's maybe too early to tell. But I have huge questions about like, this might be cool and innovative and stuff, but like, what's the, what's the result? What's the learning outcome uh, for the students in this situation? Uh, and that might tell us a lot about its, its you know, effectiveness. So those are just a few of my questions, Manuel, but uh, I, I finished this article and was like, first of all, I hadn't heard about this uh, approach before, um, at least not in traditional schools, right? There's like the open school model of the past and there's certain charters I know that have like sort of giant open spaces, but they still effectively, from what I've seen, have kids in their own class, just in a big old warehouse or whatever, right? And so... I don't know. I, I left with way more questions than answers and like maybe because of that, a little skepticism. But uh, I am like, I don't know, man. I, I want to know some of the nitty gritty details before I decide, like, is this a good look or is this just convenient for the school? Because what we have is a teacher shortage and this is the only way we can cope through it. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. This sounds like an absolute nightmare to me. It just sounds <laughs> like a nightmare. And uh. I'm just speaking for myself as a high school teacher. When I first saw the headline and, and got a couple couple uh, lines into the story, I was just assuming this must be high school seniors or something. Maybe they're working on their final portfolios, graduation portfolios or something like that. And, and maybe that would be a space where this type of model would make some sense. And then I got to the line that said 135 ninth graders. Man, shout out to all of y'all who teach freshmen. 
And those of y'all who teach middle schoolers, because, you know, same thing. Um, yeah, nah, I, uh, 135 in the same physical space, it just sounds like a nightmare to me. And I just want to say, first and foremost, I wanted to see what the teachers were saying about this experience. And according to them, the teachers who are in that room, in that space doing this, uh, it, they had nothing but positive things to say about it. So I'm going to go ahead and assume that the way it works out, although the, the article certainly doesn't point out a lot of the uh, logistical concerns and nitty gritty details that, that you that you asked about, I'm just going to go ahead and assume that, you know, these are educators who are experiencing it and they are enjoying it. And Johns Hopkins University, that is their research team who looked into um, you know, data from these these spaces, these teachers' experiences versus other teachers in the district who teach in the more traditional sense. And these teachers in these spaces had more positive uh, things to say about their work experience and their interactions with students and all that. So this is something that sounds like a nightmare to me, but I'm speaking from the outside, having not seen this with my own eyes or experienced it myself. If the teachers say it's all good, there's, you know, obviously I want to hear from the students. I picture myself as a ninth grader in a space with 135 people. That sounds like fun to me, like me and all the homies all together. And like that, I assume the students like it too. Um, but yeah, it's very surprising to me. The picture, the photo in the article, you know, shows like one teacher, the English teacher, I think like had a microphone in one corner trying to uh, teach. I shouldn't say trying to um, addressing one group of students. And then there's another teacher in the back working with uh, students who are collaborating in groups. And it just looked chaotic to me. It just looked like a nightmare. But again, they say it's all good. And I absolutely am here for innovative approaches to teaching and learning for sure. A lot of times folks think like these sort of innovative things can only happen in charter schools or independent schools. And, you know, traditional public schools are so bogged down by bureaucracy, you don't get any innovation there. And that's just false. Like I've, I've been teaching for 19 years now and I've seen plenty of innovation in different ways in different spaces in traditional public schools. So I'm all for the innovation. And if this works out in the sense that teachers feel better, if the students are, are learning, even just if they're learning as much, but especially if they're learning even more than the traditional setting, fine. Roll with it. Keep me out of it, but roll with it. And then I think, yeah. well, the teachers who are in there, they must be, uh, you know, a self-selected group, right? So like, maybe it works well for them, but it does, you know, maybe it wouldn't work well for me or, or for other teachers as well. So I, I assume that's a really big, important piece of the puzzle is who are the actual teachers working in a team? Because I doubt this could just apply to any set of teachers. Yeah. Yeah, I I think those are really smart observations uh, about this this story, Manuel, and I I, I have similar uh, thoughts and wonderings myself. I you know it was also unclear to me, and maybe the like to me I went as I read the article immediately into the like technical questions, right? Like, oh, how do they manage this? What does it look like when this happens? You know, um, and so maybe that's just the the bias I bring to the table. That's but, the administrator you know, in you. Exactly, man. But I'm thinking even that the teacher in me is thinking about things like noise, right? Um, and <laughs> a lot of times in school, when good learning is happening, it's noisy, right? Like yeah, kids are talking noisy and it to looks one chaotic, another, yeah. debating ideas. You know what I mean? Like when something juicy comes up in class and a kid says something controversial and the other kids are like, nah, man, that can't be right. Like you're not paying attention to this. You know, like the noise is is... Uh, you know, there's different types of noise in school, right? But you know when the noise is the noise of engagement, the noise of excitement, the noise of humor and joy in the learning process. 
And so what happens if like one corner of the room is experiencing that and the other corner of the room is needing like time to read and go deep into a text or to write or take a quiz or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, it just sounds like a nightmare, frankly, from a noise management standpoint. Uh, <laughs> and so maybe this is one element of like the teachers collaborate to think about like, what are your needs today and at what time in the day and how do we... You know, how do you, how do we make it work? I will say, Manuel, to go in a little further on your point of what do the teachers think about it? And if they like it, then that's probably a strong indicator. I, I agree. There were some really interesting points in the article about uh, a teacher in particular talking about feeling the, the um, isolation of our profession and that having pushed him out of the profession. And then when he came back, only applying to schools that were using this model at, because it supported the uh, the ability to collaborate throughout the day with your colleagues and not be like alone in a classroom by yourself and the ability to see other teachers teaching and learn things from their craft and stuff. So to me, it still seems like it would be really hard to do and I might not like it myself, but I was like, if that's this guy's experience, that could be you know one really yeah. important reason why this model may have some benefits. No, yeah, absolutely. And I can't help but picture myself in a space like that. And I'm thinking about, you know, who would teach what. And it kind of sounds like it might it might be a positive experience. Like, you know, if I'm I'm in there, I'm teaching uh, history and ethnic studies and my favorite math teacher, uh, Mr. Parekh, he's in there teaching math. And uh, we got Miss Dow over there teaching English and maybe Miss Beverly teaching um, engineering and science. And I'm thinking about me with those those folks in the same room with the same set of kids and that, that does sound really exciting. And that would sound very promising to me and very, very um, enriching and fulfilling for myself as a, as a professional, for sure. But damn, man, 135 yeah. ninth graders in one space, <laughs> man. Ah, uh, That's a lot of, lot of energy. That's uh, a lot of hot Cheeto energy, man. That's, that's a, lot. Lot of, a lot of hot Cheetos and Takis uh, coming that. in at 8 a.m., dude. Man, for real. So uh, so there's that. All right. So so for that roll call, yeah, a lot of names of what, four-page list of names for uh, the attendance there. Who do we have next on today's roll call? All right, man. Well, next up is, I'm just going to keep it real. Uh, this person's whack and everybody knows it. <laughs> and, so we just going to call him out right now. Uh, we got Glenn Youngkin. Glenn Youngkin, Manuel. Glenn Youngkin. Okay, okay. I believe that's uh, Virginia. I believe mm -hmm. that's the governor who bravely, bravely and patriotically, Jeff, patriotically <laughs> called out this critical race theory stuff in our schools. Yes. And if I um, am to believe what has been presented, I, I think he pretty much went out there and laid down the hammer on these Marxist left-wing teachers and extinguished mm. critical race theory from Virginia public schools. Something yes. like that. Uh, wokeness is now gone, gone from the Commonwealth, I think is uh, the phrasing you were looking for. There we go. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we are talking about the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, um, the racist, uh, twisted, sick, vile governor of Virginia. And I, I, you know, those are mean words well, in damn. some ways, but, <laughs> but sometimes when you're honest, it, it's just keeping it real, right? Yeah, so yeah. Uh, yeah, this dude's whack. He uh, ran a racist divisive campaign um, on the idea of sort of, you know, getting rid of CRT uh, from school and he won. Uh, and, you know, racist white folks in Virginia voted for him. So uh, now we, we have him uh, in office and 
uh, the, the, the sort of tip line that he started, Manuel, to collect, uh, you know, submissions from the public to turn in your teachers when they're teaching divisive liberal CRT topics. Uh, we got a, a story telling us what's happening with that tip line, and it's just oh so wonderfully <laughs> fitting. So let's get into this story, Manuel. Uh, this story comes to us from some good work from Alia Wong, uh, Nirvi Shah, and Nick uh, Penzenstadler. Uh, I really hope I said all those names correctly. I probably didn't, but uh, shout out to them. Uh, writing in USA Today. Uh, and complaints about special education violations, praise for teachers, concerns about academic rigor and options. These are some of the main themes in a sampling of the emails sent to a so-called tip line set up by Governor Glenn Youngkin earlier this year. The email tip line was part of a larger campaign by the governor to root out the teaching of critical race theory. The records became public this week through a settlement between the governor's office and 13 media organizations. Now, despite hundreds of records in the selection of emails, they compromise a small vocal group of people at about three dozen email addresses who often reiterated their grievances in multiple missives. Just a handful of the emails dealt with the issue relating to curriculum. One parent was infuriated that they had to submit public records requests to get copies of the lesson plans and learning objectives for their child's seventh grade English, history, uh, and biology classes. Quote, as a parent, I have the right to validate through the lesson plans that my child is not, in all caps, being taught divisive concepts um, or in biology not being taught divisive gender-bending LGBT campaigns with overly sexualized lesson content, end quote. That is just, that's a poster right there. Okay, so uh, <laughs> this parent wrote that in an email, actual text. Uh, groups representing teachers, counselors, parents, superintendents, and others in Virginia's education system wrote to Youngkin asking him to shut down the tip line. Quote, the tip line that Governor Youngkin established for parents and citizens to report teachers, principals, or instruction materials directly to the governor's office based on a subjective definition of divisive has already proven to be divisive itself, the group said in a joint statement. The tip line will impede parent-to-school collaboration and directly undermine the very factors that educators know contribute to student success, including having high-quality teachers in the classrooms, end quote. So, Manuel, uh, thankfully, uh, due to the heroic, as you said, patriotic actions of Governor Glenn Youngkin, wokeness has been banished from the state of Virginia, and the children are now free. Uh, <laughs> What the heck do you have to say about this ridiculous story, man? They are free. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it looks like the, the witch hunt produced no witches um, for mm. a litany of reasons. Um, one, of course, is that this CRT business um, that was used during the campaign was just a red herring. And, and aside from the fact that, yeah, technically, technically, the, the graduate school framework of critical race theory isn't directly um, utilized and, and taught to kids. But of course, we know that tenets of critical race theory, very importantly, are utilized in curriculum that is interrogating the legacy of race and racism in America. Um, but yeah, that's clear that for one, this was just um, something to, to rile up the base and, and report these Marxist teachers and, and, and you know, let's get rid of them. But many families, Many families across the Commonwealth of Virginia are very much in favor of their young students um, 
help of teachers helping their young students interrogate race and racism and also um, have curriculum that is, of course, reflective of the diversity of our nation and, and all of those things. So a lot of folks weren't going to use that tip line in the first place, because despite what we see in, um, you know, online and despite what we see in cable news and all that, it's not just like a majority of folks who like are out there wanting to get rid of this stuff. Like most folks, most like our, our school system is primarily, primarily students of color now in terms of the, the numerical majority. So we're talking about families across across the nation who want their kids to see themselves in the curriculum. So yeah, they weren't going to be calling this hotline, this tip line. Um, I do love, love that this tip line was used to report um, potential, potential violations of special education laws and uh, policies and procedures. That's fantastic. I think that's a fantastic way to kind of flip this red herring business on its, on its face and use the, the, the tools at hand to report legitimate violations elsewhere in the system, because we know our special education students are so commonly underserved. And we know too many folks in the system just allow inequities within special education just to persist and continue. So I love that that person who was profiled in the story as like flagging a whole bunch of special ed violations. And I also love that, you know, this is a second episode, sec second full episode in a row where we've had a headline about positive direction in this ongoing so-called battle around CRT. Because of course we reported about Cal State Fullerton holding a local district accountable for banning CRT and that university pulled its student teachers. And here we see a tip line that was out there that ended up being a massive failure. Sometimes it, it, it just feels so overwhelming as we saw these laws sweep the nation and continue to sweep the nation. These attacks on our curriculum, these attacks on our families and our communities sweep the nation. And, and it's so great to see evidence that it's not all bad, evidence that actually a lot of these things that are are put out there and that seem like are going to just totally disrupt and, and take apart what we do in the classroom are failing. And some important folks out there like Cal State uh, Fullerton are holding districts accountable for what they're doing. And it's just important to see glimpses of and examples of the right things being done so that it's not all doom and gloom. So this is poetic. It's poetry, yeah. Jeff. It's poetry. It is. I will. I will agree with that, Manuel. I, with one potential caveat that I will sure. say. Um, so, in the details of the story, uh, basically, USA Today and a bunch of other media organizations had sued the governor to release the emails because the uh, tip line that was set up; those emails are going directly to the governor. Now, some of them were also somehow transmitted to the State Department of Ed. So folks were, media organizations were able to get access to those emails because of Freedom of Information Act uh, requests. Um, the governor is still, uh, you know, maintaining that these emails fall under the category of sort of protected correspondence with the governor. So the vast majority of what's been submitted to this tip line, we still haven't seen, and the governor mm -hmm. is holding on to, right? So there is a question, Manuel, of like, well, what kind of stuff is, is in there? And what is he and his draconian fascist, uh, you know, state authorities, what are they doing with that information? So I'm glad that yeah. there are, that in this case, the media is playing its role as a watchdog and <laughs> putting pressure on a obviously authoritative move by the government and pushing back. Uh, I think that's the role of the media in a, in a supposedly free and democratic society. And I'm glad this is at least one step in that direction. Uh, but I do think, Manuel, there still remains great danger in this kind of policy being on the books 
for all the reasons we, we've said, right? So I am glad the folks are flooding it with other kinds of messages. Um, you know, I welcome all the kooks and loons in the state of Virginia to feel free to flood this, this tip line with whatever feelings you have and feel you need to express. Uh, I, I don't believe there's any law in Virginia that says you can't, um, you know, email in 10 times a day with your favorite passage from scripture that you think everyone should read or whatever it is, man. Uh, I hope if, if that is against the law, don't follow what I said. But, <laughs> but I mean, it sounded uh, like the tip line's gone, though. It sounded like it was <laughs> taken down back in September. So whatever email address or whatever phone number. Oh, OK. I don't even know the Sorry. structure of it, but no, that joint gone. Quietly. OK. Quietly. Gone. I see. I got caught up and I missed that that important detail. Yeah. So, all the better. Props to, <laughs> Even more to the people for, for bringing an end to this nonsense and ridiculousness, Manuel. Because uh, it's there, as I understand it, these tip lines are still up in some of the other states we've covered. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, oh, yeah. Hampshire, sure. Florida, Texas, a few other places. So uh, let's hope this is the first of many to fall. Yeah, for sure. And in, importantly, to your to your point, um, that is a important. I think. Um, method of resisting these tip lines is to flood them with other stuff, especially legitimate, legitimate Word. abuses in the system. <laughs> like, yo, this, you know, this school has had a leaky faucet for so long and we're in a drought. Send someone to fix that. Um, this school, this like send some legitimate concerns, because, of course, if we truly care about the quality of our education system, if these tip lines are truly, truly rooted in trying to do what's best for young people, there's a lot of things, a lot of things across the system to report, including including um, decisions made by policymakers that are not in keeping with democratic humanizing classrooms. Report all that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, Jeff. That about does it for this week's Do Now. We have a giant classrooms and I guess defunct hotlines. Interesting, interesting set of stories there. And now we're about to transition to a very important discussion, examining the ongoing issues within the early childhood education space, within the kindergarten space and fighting for equity and advancing equity for all young people, like really young people in this case. All right, that's coming up next in our seminar. Stay tuned. Hey folks, thanks so much for tuning in to All The Above. We really appreciate you. And as you know, All The Above is a small operation. It's just me and just Manuel, that's it. We have no sponsorships, which means we are totally dependent on our amazing audience to help support the show. So here's what you can do. Go to our website, which is aotashow.com slash support. That's aotashow.com slash support. There you can find links to everything you can do to support the show. You find all the links to every platform that we're on where you can like, subscribe, follow, make sure you share our show with your whole network. Also, you can donate there. We are on Venmo, we're on Cash App, and most importantly, you can find the link to our Anchor page where you can become a monthly patron. Even a small donation once a month will make a huge difference in helping us continue to produce the show. Lastly, you can find there the link to get your flyest, best, latest, all the above show merch. Okay, all you gotta do is go to aotashow.com slash support. Thanks, enjoy the rest of the show.
All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. Thanks so much for joining us today. And we are thrilled and excited to have with us uh, a guest who, as I said at the top of the episode, is going to help, I think, both Manuel and I uh, explore a really important uh, topic and set of conversations in the field of education that's probably a little bit outside of our comfort zone, both being uh, folks with deep secondary experience, uh, but we are just excited to have uh, an amazing elementary educator, and not only an elementary educator, but a early elementary educator, a kindergarten teacher extraordinaire uh, here with us today, Teo Enna. Uh, welcome, Teo, to all the above. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Looking forward to this discussion. Yes, absolutely. Well, folks, let me tell you a little bit more about our guest. Uh, Teo Enna has been teaching kindergarten at STEAM at Stipe for the past 17 years. He grew up in Santa Cruz, California, and received his bachelor's in social science and master's in educational leadership from San Jose State University. Teo is the co-founder of the Black Educators Coalition, committed to the recruitment and retention of educators of color. He created the How to Raise an Anti-Racist Family Parent Workshop, designed to have conversations centered around recognizing and demonstrating what it means to be anti-racist parents. He has also developed the Young Black Scholars Club, a district-wide after-school program focused on celebrating, empowering, and inspiring black and biracial students in kindergarten through third grade. Teo is the Oak Grove School District's 2021 Teacher of the Year, and recipient of the 49ers Foundation Teacher of the Game. Uh, welcome again, Teo Anna, to all the above. And I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah, we got some kindergarten dopeness in the building today. And although all of that is super important, it's also important to point out that two-thirds of your screen right now are 49er faithful. Go Niners. <laughs> Go Niners. And also, uh, I do want to point out, if you... If you are watching the video, um, you can't tell from the video, but Mr. Enna is like eight feet tall. So I can imagine, <laughs> I can imagine how the little kids react when they meet you for the very first time. So Taya, thank you, thank you so much for being here. And you know, it's not, it's not necessarily the fault of the creators slash co-hosts of all the above, but kindergarten hasn't really been discussed. Early childhood, early childhood education in general hasn't really been discussed much on our show. So we wanna start by giving you a moment just to share with us a little bit about what the kindergarten space is looking like these days, what equity issues might exist at that level that folks outside of that space perhaps aren't very well aware of. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so let me try to paint a picture of kindergarten from a daily experience. Um, it's first of all, a beautiful space for learning. Um, kids come in with these curious minds and they're open and they're eager and they're excited about just the minute, the smallest things uh, in the daily um, classroom setting. And so one of the things I love is hearing, this is, Mr. Anna, this is my best day ever. And you get that in all types of settings. If we're using watercolors, if we're using Play-Doh, if we're engineering and building designs, the kids who have been to Disneyland, Great America, Six Flags are telling me, that they consider this moment right now their best day ever. And so just inspiring those curious minds and uplifting them and, and being part of that process of having them see learning from a, a joyful per perspective. Um, also, I get a sense of uh, what Beatlemania felt like because when I open my door each day, kids are 
excited, they're hyped to just enter the classroom and be a part of uh, our daily interactions. And so when that door opens, kids are jumping, they're celebrating, they're clapping, and it, it just is refreshing to the heart. And it just reminds you of the importance of what we do and, and, and what we can provide them with in the classroom. And with that said, I think it's essential for uh, early educators all the way through high school is like, how can we nurture and feed that? There's a desire for kids to learn and, and they're amazed by what they get to capture within the classroom setting. So what can we do not to extinguish that, but to nurture that? And, um, you know, I've been teaching for 17 years. This is my 18th year. And so I've seen it all. I've, I, I had a VHS uh, cassette tape in my classroom and, and now we're currently streaming. And uh, with that, I've seen some of those concerns that, that happen with um, technology, because I think technology is a wonderful thing, um, but in, in doses. And so what I'm starting to see more is uh, a bit of a disconnect because a lot of kids have had a lot of screen time as well as uh, adults. And there could be a disconnect between um, the, the value of conversation. Because I've many a times gone to parks. I have two daughters, uh, one is four and one is six, and we've gone to parks. And I've see, seen kids with their parents and they're just sort of swinging by themselves or going down the slide um, while their parents are on their phone. And so there's this real opportunity to re-engage and, and recommit to the value of conversation and, and the importance of being around one another and not using our screen um, too much. Um, and also there's, when we're talking about equity, there's this million word gap uh, by the age of five um, that I'm very concerned about. And it, it ties into the whole piece of conversation because I try to spend as much time, especially in the car with my daughters, just talking to them and asking questions and inquiring about their day and responding to their questions. So we're having this constant dialogue and they're hearing a lot of words from me and from them. And with that gap, you know, by kindergarten creates a concern for me because I've seen it where kids are disengaged as listeners. Like I'm actually in kindergarten teaching them how to listen as a student, how to face one, how to lean in, how to look at. Um, and we actually had a discussion just the other day of like how to model that, how to be that and what it feels like when someone doesn't look like they're listening and the joy of listening to others. Um, and then another thing I see in kindergarten, um, which is a bit of concern is that element of independency. Uh, and this is regarding simple tasks, like putting on your jacket, taking off your shoe, putting on your shoe, following one step directions. And I think the more kids have opportunities at home to be independent rather than dependent on parents doing things for them, uh, they see really value in that. I mean, I have kids, again, this is kindergarten, not high school, but there are kids when they open a milk carton for the first time after saying, you can do this, this is how you do it. This is the way to do it. They are excited. They're dancing. They're doing the floss. They're doing the hype. They're doing all types of things to express like, I did this on my own. And so I think there's a real value of just allowing kids to be independent. Obviously, they're five, so they need support from an adult. But when we give them the opportunities to grow on their own, they see true value in that. And then also, um, I remember years ago, my wife and I would go to events, sporting events. She's from UCLA, and so, uh, or graduated from UCLA. 
And so we would go to football games and, and, and basketball games, and I'd see all these little kids wearing Stanford University sweaters and UCLA sweaters. And by them wearing that, they're already being filled with this idea of this space is for you. And I think it's really important for families that they have that conversation that your kid can go to college. Now, some kids may or may not, but I want them to have the belief and the understanding and the desire that they too should be in that space and can be in that space. And then the last thing um, is class size reduction. And I'm seeing um, right now, because I have a, a relatively smaller class than I've had in the past, uh, when we're talking about equity, is trying to reduce that class size. Um, because I've had upwards to 28 kids and to have 28 five-year-olds, uh, it looks like an endless line that that never ends. And um, and then there's uh, uh, an increase in volume in the class and there's a disconnect between our discussions because I can only call on so many students at a time. And so I think kids feel removed when they're in a space like that. So if we can really have a discussion uh, from the state level down about class size reduction, not just in early childhood education, but throughout, I think that would greatly benefit the student, the teacher and the environment. Yeah. Teo, I really, really appreciate those words. And I, I think um, the irony of, of us not responding effectively from a policy perspective around uh, class size reduction in kindergarten is I would say it's fair to say most adults in our society have had a very familiar type of experience that should give you all the insight you need to know about why that is so important, which is hosting birthday parties. And anyone who's ever tried to have a birthday party with like nine or 10 four and five, you know, and five-year-olds uh, and felt the exhaustion and the like, oh my God, <laughs> this is so overwhelming. With that size of a group that's honestly just trying to have fun together, right? Isn't necessarily trying to do super complex things like learn your shapes and sounds and colors and letters and write and read, uh, should have no doubt <laughs> about the value of reducing class size uh, in kindergarten. So uh, just wanted to share that, but... Um, Teo, I think uh, you speaking to the power and importance here of, uh, of kindergarten, I think it's so compelling. Uh, and also, it's interesting that California, like many states around the country, doesn't actually legally require uh, kindergarten for students. And in fact, here in California, just recently, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill that would have mandated kindergarten uh, for all students prior to entering the first grade, um, citing that it would cost uh, the state somewhere around $268 million a year, um, and citing the fact that most kids already go to kindergarten anyways. So really would love to get your insights on the importance uh, developmentally and educationally uh, of kindergarten for young people. And also uh, thinking about this policy for a minute, do you have any insights to share about uh, consequences unintended or otherwise that a policy like mandating kindergarten might have? Yes, yes. So my initial thought when I heard about this veto by Gavin Newsom was, uh, you gotta be kidding me. Then I said, okay, let me read some articles and do some research. And I've come to the conclusion that you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> I, I, I just don't quite understand the idea of 
why there's opposition to this. Um, I don't know if it's the word mandated and we've come from, you know, mandated mass to mandated kindergarten, but I think like, well, if first grade is uh, the start of compulsory education, why can't kindergarten be? Because it would show a true commitment investment in early childhood education. And so I, I think that's essential because I've seen the consequences just in my classroom when kids miss significant time. Even if they miss, let's say, a span of two weeks in the classroom or various days, they miss two days a week or so forth, they're behind the rest of the class because we're moving forward at a gradual pace. I don't want to make kindergarten sound like we're rapidly moving through things, but we're consistently moving forward. And when kids miss that opportunity, it's detrimental to them as a learner because now they're behind the ball when they enter first grade. And there's a lot of things that happen beyond just the academics in, in kindergarten. Like we're talking about how to be empathetic and how to understand other people's emotions and how to understand our own emotions and how to work through that. I mean, just the other day, we were talking about the difference between being alone and being lonely. And after that discussion, one of my students was literally looking around the playground, trying to find kids that look lonely to go over to them and say, hey, would you like to play with me? And that's the value of having a classroom to have a discussion about things they might not think about. I don't think prior to that, he was walking around saying, you know what, what's the difference between alone and lonely? But then when we had a classroom discussion, there was a lot of power to that. And then we're also talking in kindergarten about identity and, and, and one learning about who they are and who they're becoming. And, and there's real power to that. And the understanding of diversity of thought, because one could say, well, I'm having those discussions at home with my child. But there's this true value of hearing from others and hearing the experiences of their peers that they can relate to or see differences in, but understand we're here together. Um, and then there's a lot of developmental skills that we're talking about with collaboration, learning from mistakes, learning from our peers, knowing that there's challenges ahead of us that we can take on because we're a STEAM school. So we talk a lot about being problem solvers. And so because of our constant discussions while they're in my classroom in kindergarten, they're looking at themselves as problem solvers, whether it's something within their table and a discussion that they're having there or the greater good of the school or things that they can do at home. So there's this importance of making sure kids have those opportunities to be in a classroom setting. That's not just about learning sounds and, and learning how to add and subtract, but how to interact and socialize with one another uh, to improve their opportunities and to just connect with one another. I mean, we talked about, you know, during, you know, being, being distant from each other during COVID and, and now that we have an opportunity to be together, Let's let's take on that opportunity and experience. Yeah, I also thought you got to be kidding me when I saw that, and I don't even know anything or much about kindergarten. Um, certainly, I don't know nearly as much as you, but it just seems so. I'll be honest, I didn't realize that kindergarten already was optional. I don't I don't have kids of my own, so I didn't realize that kindergarten was like not mandated. So seeing that, I was like, oh wow. But although mandated kindergarten 
doesn't appear to be coming to California, at least this year. Um, last year, the state did take some steps to expand access to preschool and really invest in this idea of universal preschool. But part of that was also investment in transitional kindergarten, also known as TK. So we're wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the meaning and purpose of transitional kindergarten and what the expansion of transitional kindergarten might do to impact the overall quality of our early childhood education system. Yes. Yeah. Uh, transitional kindergarten helped fill the void and, and a gap for learners because uh, there was a time when you could enter kindergarten as long as you turned five by December 1st. And then that scaled back to September 1st. And so there's a percentage of students that weren't having an opportunity to get a free education in the public school setting. And so this is helping fill that void. And again, it ties back into for, for the youth, for these four-year-olds, they're getting a chance to interact with one another in a social setting. They're getting opportunities to role play and try things out because you got you got to learn what works and what doesn't work when you're you're, you're interacting with your peers and your friends. Um, and then moving forward, I, I think it's it's great to hear that TK educators, you know, next year and beyond that are that are inspiring to become educators in that space are we going to be required to have 24 units of early childhood education because uh, I think it's key to have access and uh, an awareness of what to expect because this is a whole different playing field and uh, that was one of my concerns that um, and this is nothing against upper grade teachers or, or teachers that have not been in the space but it's completely different than what they've experienced in fifth grade or fourth grade or even second grade. So to have um, an opportunity to be in that space, to learn from that space, to learn from others who are experienced in that space, I think is essential moving forward. Um, so I think as we move through the years with transitional kindergarten, it's very important that uh, all stakeholders meet uh, from TK teachers, collaborating with kindergarten teachers to early childhood educators so that we can make sure that we're creating a space designed for learning and, and not making TK, because this is one of my, my big concerns, not making TK just a watered down version of kindergarten and, and, and making it a rigorous setting where kids are getting penalized for not mastering standards, um, because that should be a space where they're having a lot of opportunity to play and, 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 and work on hand, hand, sorry, but work on hands-on activities opposed to worksheets, that they're developing those fine motor skills. Because I see that's one of the things we focus on early on in kindergarten is fine motor schools skills. And if they can have that early on, um, then we can transition to other things during the school year. Um, and from a personal perspective, I'm getting an opportunity with our TK students to interact with them on a daily basis because they share our kindergarten playground. So I get to say hi to these students. I get to know one another. There's one in particular that likes to show me magic tricks, how a rock can disappear or reappear in his hand. And we're establishing a connection that will play out next year when he or she is in my classroom. And instead of those tears and fears of the first day of kindergarten, they'll be eager and excited because now they get a chance to be in Mr. Ennis' class who they know and who they're comfortable with. And also it's giving me an opportunity to get to learn 
the different dynamics of each child so that I can start brainstorming how to make that transition for them positive and how to work with them through some of the things I'm noticing right now in the playground to help their experience throughout kindergarten. Mm. Yeah, I, I um, so much of what you were saying there, uh, Teo, resonates with me. And um, you're, you're honestly <laughs> making me think about, uh, I said this earlier in the episode, the most intimidating experience I think I've had as an educator uh, came a few years ago during the strike here in LA where I was helping to cover classes and um, I had to cover a kindergarten class. And, you know, here I am, uh, big, big, bad secondary educator, you know, think, thinking I've uh, seen it all and was like, oh my goodness, the, the complexity of things that are happening in a kindergarten classroom is on a whole different level <laughs> from, uh, from what you experience at the secondary level, level where kids come with the skills, at least mostly come with the skills to like manage so much of themselves on their own. Uh, and in kindergarten, you have both, you know, as you said, the, the sort of focus on fine motor skills and the, you know, the real like concentration of learning that is about the development of young people as young people. And then also, you know, just as demanding set of, you know, uh, academic content standards and those sort of things as well. So just wanted to share that and give you and all of our kindergarten educators out there some uh, some big props for uh, for the complexity of the work. And I think that is often dismissed uh, when people think about kindergarten as just, you know, um, supervising the youngest kids or, or, or maybe don't see the nuanced nature of the work as, as you've explained here. So uh, just want to share that. But um, in addition to your work uh, in the classroom, you also have uh, taken on some leadership roles outside the classroom, including in the area of helping to uh, recruit and retain a diverse educated workforce and bring teachers of color into the profession. Um, and so I wonder if you can share with us a little bit about what that work is like, in particular in the early uh, childhood education space, and how, if at all, that work differs from the uh, just sort of general uh, work uh, K-12 around educator workforce diversity. Yeah, I guess we're going to address the unicorn in the room because I've been called a unicorn and an anomaly, uh, not just because I'm a male educator in early childhood education, but also a black male educator in early childhood education. So, um, you know, I, I think when we're talking about diversifying, uh, it, it starts early and, and there's not enough examples of uh, myself across uh, the state. And I just want to be supportive of that because um, I'm actually trying, in addition to the Black Educators Coalition, which I co-founded with Dr. Jamal Splain and uh, Jimmy Brown, um, I'm trying to develop sort of like a BIPOC early childhood educator network, um, especially for males, um, because there's unique experiences that we have in, in early childhood ed education that I think go unnoticed by others. Um, and one of those is biases. Um, I've can't count the number of times where I've seen unflattering looks from parents when they see me for the first time. And I don't think it's just my height. Yes, I am six, five and a half, but I, I, I've seen parents almost stop in their tracks um, as they see me as the student, the teacher that is going to be uh, for their student. 
Um, now that all changes once they get to see the relationship I've developed with the kid and, and the way I, I run my classroom and the joy that I bring to their child. But those initial reactions and initial looks, um, now they have decreased. I don't see them as frequently as I did 17, 16, 15 years ago, uh, but they're still present. And, and they're also present for the teachers that I've spoken to about some relatable experiences that we have. Um, and, and then there's also um, some unfortunate interactions I've had with uh, Ed Karens, uh, where they have a, a particular belief on what a, a classroom teacher should look like and sound like and be like. And I've been sort of challenged one time in the past, um, she will rename nameless, what is called Ed Karen. Um, and she talked about basically my lack of having motherly instincts um, which I made sure to address right in that very moment. I was not going to allow her to uh, fill my space with that negativity. Um, and so I, I think we have to really understand that we have to create a sense of belonging for or teachers like me and, and not look at these so-called deficits that they're labeling as, as lack of qualities, but um, encourage them to be in that space. So I would also ask for credential programs to give real opportunity for teachers of color, but also male teachers of color, an opportunity to be in this space. Because I'm quite certain if you're in this space, you'll see the true value and the opportunity that you can provide. And I would also suggest that you just be yourself. You know, don't try to conform in any way or say, well, you know, my experience was different. This is your experience to design for you and for those students. And if you want them to bring themselves into this classroom and the whole student bring yourself into that classroom as well and i think of sharif el meki and he has a shirt that I, that i love and the saying is uh be the teacher you never had and so that's one reason i wanted to be an educator in early childhood development is because i never had a kindergarten teacher that looked like me the, the first time i saw um, a black man in front of a classroom was my junior year in high school and so I wanted to make sure that I could give that early experience and exposure to the students so that maybe they can also see themselves, right? Because they're down putting, they're downloading information every single day. And if they see me in this space and I look like them, then they can also see themselves in this space down the road. So it might take some time because they're only five and you know, they might not get into the profession until they're 25, but they're down putting that information that, hey, I too can be in front of the classroom and not just in a classroom. And like we talked about earlier, it's the power of representation. Um, it's just so important for kids to see themselves and, and understand that this is a place for them. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I can't help but think about the power of, so for those parents who do have the the creeps, as you, as you called it, when they see you, just the power of their their child seeing you and having that experience early on, because so much of the discussion around educator diversity um, really high, highlights the importance of, of young people having exposure to educators from, from all walks of life. And, and again, just beautiful, beautiful knowing that you are in that early space and, and giving that opportunity to young people early on to have a black teacher, because yeah, I didn't have one. I didn't have one till college. So shout out, shout out to you for sure. Now, and I think it's if, also important because as I see kids in my space, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I see kids in my space. I tell them 
you can be a teacher because there there's been this research that shows that uh, a white female teacher is told as early as third grade that they can be a teacher, right? They start hearing that discussion amongst others. But for a black man, they might not hear it until college, which isn't too late, but there's a big gap. And, and so I make a point to tell my students, hey, you just taught me something. I think you would be a wonderful teacher. Now they blow me off, oh, Mr. Anna, I don't know what you're talking about. No, I, well, I'm not going to be a teacher, but I'm planting that seed of belief that, yeah. hey, Mr. Enna believes in me. Um, and so maybe, just maybe. And, and, and so I always want to make sure that I emphasize that to my students, because right now we're talking about community helpers in my class. That's one of our themes. And we're talking about firefighters and we're talking about muralists and we're talking about chefs and so forth. But they're right now interning in my classroom. A student is in this space each and every day from kindergarten or TK all the way through high school. They're getting a classroom experience. They're getting training on the spot. And so it's important for us to say, hey, you two belong here. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And as busy as you are, you made the decision that you're not busy enough because you started something, um, some parent workshops, some parent workshops about how to raise an anti-racist family. So we want to talk about that for a bit. So as, as a parent yourself and as somebody who undoubtedly works with uh, or communicates with parents a lot, um, these workshops about anti-racism and helping parents understand um, the key elements of anti-racism. Talk to us a bit about those and what would you say are some of the key elements of anti-racism for parents and particularly for parents of, of really young children of four or five, six-year-olds? Absolutely. So I, I like to connect things to basketball. I played basketball my whole career uh, or through high school and college. And so I look at this as you got to develop your inside and outside game. My inside game is my classroom. And then this is a, an aspect of my outside game, my jump shot. Um, and so I designed how to raise an anti-racist family um, while we're distant learning, because I felt like this was a window for parents to sort of see the classroom like they were sitting because especially in kindergarten, they were sitting side by side, their child and listening to the books and hearing the conversations. And I wanted them to understand my why, that there's a purpose for the books that I'm reading, that I'm uh, sharing with these kids and having these conversations about empathy and, and, and value oneself. And so I designed this to provide a space to have those conversations, especially since we're, we're talking about ethnic studies. And, and I, I felt like I could get into that um, environment and say, this is why it's important. This is why we do it and how you can model it at home. And so one of the main components of just how to raise an anti-racist family is the willingness to lean in. Because like Ibram X. Kendi talks about, it's not enough to just say, I'm not racist. Because you're idle in that position, you need to lean in and be proactive. And so uh, what I usually talk about, you know, in those initial stages with the parents is this idea of planting the seed. Because there have been many a times when I've talked to my daughters, especially my oldest, who's six now, about um, social injustices for her perspective, right? I have to make sure I, I have it for her space and her age. Um, but right after I think I make this profound statement, 
that I think just like I hit it out of the ballpark and it's still going. She'll look at me and just say, so are we going to get ice cream? (laughs) This, this did not land. And and that's my first feeling that, Oh man, I just, I missed the mark. I got to change this up. But in reality, I planted a seed and I look at it as a garden. Like we plant seeds and there's not instantly like a, a tomato plant growing. Something's happening. Something's working beneath the ground and beneath the soil. And it's my responsibility to nurture it and water it and provide it sunlight. So the, in these small conversations that I have with my daughter and that I discuss with the, the, the parent workshop is that we just have to make sure we're watering it. We can't allow these opportunities not to take place because then nothing will grow. Um, and growing is occurring. And what I've noticed, especially with my daughter, is now she's inquiring, asking more questions. And we're having longer discussions uh, and more valuable discussions. And and some might say, oh, well, well, kids are too young to understand racism and and social injustice. But I remember seeing a saying that said, um, if black kids are young enough to experience racism, then white kids are young enough to learn about it. Um, and, and so I always talk to my families because um, it ranges kids from three years of age all the way maybe to high school um, or, or, or um, some of these parents have. And, and just the importance of having those conversations and that you'll fail forward, that you you have to try these things out. You have to try these conversations because in reality, your kids probably know well more than you you anticipated. And also... What Ibram X. Handy talks about is if we're not having these discussions with our, our children, then they're being fed a lot of racist ideas because it's institutionalized. It's uh, systematic. So um, it's everywhere, whether it's in toys, it's in movies, it's in video games. Uh, there's either a, a removal of somebody or, or a stereotype that's being presented. So we have to make sure that we are doing our right part in providing opportunities to bring TV shows that are diverse. I mean, Sesame Street has been consistent with that. And and maybe Sesame Street uh, isn't right for a a sixth grader, but if you have a three-year-old, you have a two-year-old, you need to get them in that space because they're addressing these things for those kids. And then just make sure you're diversifying your books that you have at home. And also I, I, I want the parents to talk to their kids about, look, I'm having these conversations with others, and and this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to grow and be an anti-racist. So if the parents are explaining to their kids, this is a space that I'm trying to um, grow in, then it it provides the child with an understanding of, okay, this is something really important. My parents are invested. I need to invest, and we, we too can make the world a better place. And I also, you know, push back on the idea of like, these are courageous conversations because I do agree with uh, Glenn Singleton and so forth. But what I'm saying is if we do this enough and we start early with our children, then they won't look at it as courageous conversations. They'll just look at it as common conversations, that these are things that we can have naturally, not uh, forced or, or challenged, but that this is a space that we can have and, and discuss important issues and and activate that. Um and then the last point is not to be a bystander, because um, oftentimes we might hear something at school or or in passing or, or at home, and we're like, oh, I shouldn't address that, or maybe I shouldn't. 
And I really encourage parents to develop the upstander within them. And, and what's really beautiful to see is in my last discussion with one of the families, a parent actually said that she did that. And, and she felt very validated in that moment that she had a little interaction at, at work and decided to be an upstander. And, and she was able to persuade and explain something that somebody else had missed. And I think there's real value in honoring like, hey, you did the work that we've been talking about and you should be uh, ecstatic about, you know, moving forward. So, um, and the last part, I'm sorry, is just this empathy, this keys to empathy. Um, we have to just learn from one another, share our experiences, honor and value our differences, but see where we intersect and where we can connect um, it is so essential. Yeah. Uh, Teo, love, love what you had to say there. Thank you for, uh, for just taking on this, this incredibly important work. And I will say, if it's any consolation to you, uh, Teo, that uh, when they get to high school, they will probably also ask if we're still getting ice cream too. So <laughs> even, even though the seeds, as you said, are, are planting and germinating, uh, you, you might still get that question when they're 16 or 17 as well. Uh, but uh, folks, unfortunately, that is it for today's seminar. I want to give a big thanks to our guest, uh, award-winning kindergarten teacher, uh, Teo Enna from up in uh, Oak Grove uh, School District in the San Jose, California area. Uh, Teo, thanks so much for joining us today on All the Above. Thank you for having me, guys. Take care. All right. Folks, thanks for joining us for today's seminar, uh, but stick around. Next up is our class dismissed. All right, folks, it's time for class dismissed. Let's end this episode on a positive note, shouting out some folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. Jeff, what do we got for today's class dismissed? Well, Manuel, today uh, we got to give a shout out to uh, lots of educators, frankly, but also a slice of folks in, in the system, especially here in L.A., but this is true in many places uh, around the country as well. Uh, folks working on the very most fundamental aspect of school, which is getting the kids to come. Uh, focusing on attendance. And we know that uh, over the last few years, since the pandemic just devastated uh, us and, and forced the closure of physical school campuses, um, we have not yet been able to fully return to the kind of pre-pandemic levels of attendance. And here in LA, um, the LA Unified School District has been doing a lot to reconnect kids and families with uh, school and with the school system. And uh, on Friday, November 4th, there was a big I Attend School Campaign Day with uh, folks from the central office, with uh, pupil services uh, counselors going out into uh, the community to do home visits and really try to connect, uh, to go to homes and find students and families who um, have been especially chronically absent from school uh, to try to figure out what their needs are and help bring them back uh, into their school and the school community. So um, just want to give a shout out to all the educators working hard on attendance. Um, and we know that, you know, a lot of those lingering effects of the pandemic with illness and loss in families and those kind of things are still hitting 
a certain slice of our community very hard. And, um, you know, it's just great to see a school system and a, you know, sort of army of educators uh, engaging deeply on this issue and really saying, you know what, we're going we're gonna to come to you and figure out what we can do to help support you and bring you back uh, to school campuses. And on a quick point of data, the chronic absenteeism data uh, for the district, that's uh, students who are attending school less than 92% of the time. Um, that data has improved significantly this year, Manuel, down, um, I believe, six percentage points from uh, the year prior. Uh, so we're seeing movement in the right direction, still a ways to go. But uh, just want to say, you know, props to the district for working on this. And um, I know there's many other districts out there doing similar things to help reconnect kids to school. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And that is not easy work. So shout out to everybody, not just within Los Angeles Unified, but in other districts as well across the nation that are dedicating themselves and working hard to help reconnect students with uh, with their schools, with their campuses. So for sure, shout out to all of them. And also, also, the classroom teacher and me would be remiss if I didn't take a moment to shout out everybody working out there in the school system generally, but specifically classroom teachers and site administrators and, and all the staff at different campuses across the nation. It's November, Thanksgiving break is coming up and then winter break after that. And this time of the semester can be very tough. The weather's changed and, and it gets dark so early now. And, and it's just, it's hard work. It's just really hard work working in our school system. So shout out to all of y'all who have been doing your best since the start of school all the way till now. Hang in there. Definitely hang in there. You have a break coming up. Hopefully that'll give you some time to get some some sort of rest and some sort of recovery because this is difficult work. So keep hanging in there. I mean that it's very much appreciated. All of y'all who are out there, despite all the challenges in the system and despite all the challenges we face, um, all of y'all who are continuing to show up every day for our young people. So shout out to all of y'all and, and, and also shout out to all of y'all who are watching or listening to this episode, especially y'all who are still playing the episode all the way in, like what are we, an hour in or something like that. Shout out to y'all for hanging in there with us all the way, all the way to the end of the episode. You might as well take an extra uh, moment or two to make sure you've done that five stars or to make sure you've clicked on the, the link to the YouTube video so you could give that thumbs up or vice versa. So. I mean, you might as well. You, you hung in with us this far, so very much appreciate y'all AOTA family. Remember AOTA.com for all the previous episodes and all that good stuff. We very much love and appreciate you, and we'll catch you next time.